be reading for us, so you may want to turn in your Bibles. It's going to be a great, great help if you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. It's a well-known passage. It's a wonderful passage to start off the new year. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. Thank you, Kelly. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a prosecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. notice that David made concerning the Explore course. It's a three-year course. There are eight modules, and uh, it's taking the Word of God and the Bible seriously. And there's actually four of us who are teaching that. I'm teaching the third year. Royden's teaching the second year. Eddie's teaching the course in Tembisa, and we're starting the first year. If you want to start with Explore, uh, your teacher will be Sean, Sean Storer, who's right here with us this morning. And can I just say, perhaps you've started that course before, and for some other reason, you bailed out. Well, I really want to encourage you and anybody else to join Sean. Of all the teachers, there are four teachers, the very best is Sean. You need to know that. And um, uh, so uh, do sign up for Explore. It's quite hard work uh, because we take the Bible seriously, and it needs hard work. 
but you won't have a better uh, shepherd or an aid or a helper than having Sean open up the Word of God. The first course gives you an overview of the whole of the Bible, the Old and New Testament, and shows you that actually it's one story. So uh, do look at that and uh, do join Sean. He's a great teacher. Do you know that when I'm really struggling with a particular passage and I'm thinking, who can I ask to help me? I don't ask Royden. I don't ask David. I ask Sean. I phone Sean. I say, Sean, what do you think about this passage? What do I do with this? And uh, Sean normally is able to help me. So do think about joining Explore. It's a wonderful, wonderful course taking you through the Bible. I'm going to pray as we come to God's Word. If you are new here this morning, my name is Martin. It really is lovely to have you here with us. I know there's a few guests and visitors, and it's really great to have you here with us this morning, the 2nd of January, 2022. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his Word. Father, we do just want to think back over the past year, and we do want to thank you. Father, we're very good at grumbling and complaining, and yet we so rarely thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, you have been faithful even when we have been unfaithful, and you have answered so many of our prayers. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your hand upon us in bringing us through this year. And we pray, Lord, that once again in this new year that you may help us and you may be with us. And even though we sometimes wander and fall and fail, nonetheless, Lord, we do pray that you may pick us up and once again work in us and through us. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for our church family. Help us, Father, to serve Christ. And Lord, we pray now that your Spirit will help us to understand what God says to us in his word. So speak to us through your word, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Netflix has a very popular comedy series. It's a sitcom series. It's been going for a number of years, and it's called The Good Place. And The Good Place is actually heaven. And the whole series is about heaven. Key star uh, is a lady called uh, Eleanor, and uh, she's a deceased sales lady. And she had lived while she was alive. There are flashbacks, and uh, while she was alive, she lived a very narcissistic, morally corrupt life. In fact, she calls herself she calls herself the Arizona trash bag. And um, she arrives at the good place in heaven through an error. And she so enjoys it, she wants to stay, so she tries to become a better person. And though it's a comedy, it actually is teaching religion. It's teaching philosophy. That is really what it is about. And the kind of philosophy it teaches is really uh, um, something most of us would struggle with. Because the characters in this series... Uh, spend most of the series uh, struggling to define what is good. Because the series is based upon the universal assumption that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's the assumption of this Netflix series. That's the assumption of most people. Most people in our world have that kind of thinking. 
It's this universal assumption that if you want to go to heaven, you must be good. So there's a good God who lives in a good place, reserved for good people. Religions will have different names for God, different names for heaven. However, the universal criterion is the way to get to that good place is to be good. It's the motto or the logo of Avis. We try harder. So if you try harder, according to Avis, and according to the series, the good place, you will get to the good place. So each religion will have a different definition of goodness. But what they will have in common is that there are certain things you must do and there are certain things you mustn't do to be good. That is the universal assumption of our world and most people in our culture. Perhaps that's your assumption. Now, it's precisely that kind of thinking from Netflix that Paul wants to oppose and to trash in this passage. He wants to trash the idea that only good people get to heaven. So we need to unpack this passage. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He founded this church in modern-day Greece in a place called Philippi, and now he's writing a letter some years later because false teachers had invaded the church and were teaching false teaching. They'd become leaders and preachers in the church, and Paul writes this letter to correct their thinking and their teaching because it was so appalling. And that's the reason for his letter. So let's have a look at this passage. I'm going to unpack it under three headings, the fight, the balance sheet, and the main thing. But before we do that, let's go down one side road. As you know, I do. You haven't had side roads for a while. So you deserve it. As we, as we look at this passage, we discover that Paul actually... It's a kind of a disclaimer. Paul actually is coming from a certain worldview. He has a certain worldview as he writes. Now, a worldview is like spectacles. It's like your glasses. It's how you look at the world. It's how you think about the world. It gives you a perspective and understanding of what the world is like and what is happening to you. It helps you to understand the great questions of life. Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Who is God? What happens after death? Those are the great questions of life which, which will affect your everyday life. That's your worldview. And Paul has a worldview. Now, most people here this morning are part of our church family, and you will have a Pauline worldview, a biblical worldview. It's the same thing. We have a worldview in this church which comes from Paul and from the Bible. There may be one or two of you here this morning or watching on the website who may not share in that worldview, and I'm so pleased that you're here, and you are most welcome to be here. But let me just say, it is critically important for all of us to think through our worldview. Because if you get your worldview wrong, you are going to get everything else wrong. So what is Paul's worldview? Where is he coming from? Well, I think the first hint here is in verse 2, where he's talking about right and wrong. He's talking about true and false. He's talking about good and bad. Notice there, verse 2. He speaks about some people as dogs, and obviously others are not dogs. I mean, it's pretty strong language, isn't it? Some people are evildoers, others are not evildoers. Verse 7, something is a gain and something is a loss. Verse 8, 
Something is rubbish and obviously something else is not rubbish. Well, what is that? It's absolutes. It's right and wrong. Now, you can only have absolutes. Believe me, you can only have absolutes if you have a personal creator God. If you have no personal creator God, you cannot have any kind of absolutes. You cannot have right and wrong. You cannot have true and false. Dostoevsky's Ivan in The Brothers Karamoz was spot on when he said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Everything is lawful. Well, of course he's right. If there's no God, you cannot speak of absolutes. If there's no personal creator God, how can you say something is right and something is wrong? How can you say something is true and something is false? How can you say there are dogs and there are shepherds? How can you say there's gain or loss? How can you say there's heaven or hell? If there's no personal creator God, you cannot explain why we are personal. Why can we speak? Why can we think? Why can we feel love and hate and sadness and guilt? Why do we feel those things? You cannot explain it unless there's a personal creator God. There's no reason. If there's no personal creator God, there's no reason to fight against injustice. There's no reason to fight for human rights. None. Because there are no absolutes. Why is kindness better than selfishness? If there's no absolutes, if there's no God, there's no reason why kindness is better than selfishness. There's no reason why love is better than hate. There's no reason to, to say there's a right way to approach God and, and there's a wrong way to approach God. So your worldview is critically important. It actually is a matter of life and death. And the Pauline worldview, the biblical worldview, the worldview of this church is that there's a real God, an absolute personal God, the source of everything. He has no source. He's a real God. He's a personal God. We are personal. Surely he is personal. He's a speaking God. And he is a God who's told us how we get right with him and how we do not get right with him. Now, without that worldview, this passage, and actually the rest of the Bible, won't make any sense. That's the worldview that Paul is coming from. And that's the worldview we hold to. If you're a guest or visitor here this morning, that's the worldview we hold to as a Christian church. And it's the only worldview that will make sense of what we read in the Bible. All right, let's have a look. Principle number one. Let's have a look at the fight. Verse 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, whatever your home language is, this is pretty strong language, isn't it? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers. The obvious question is why, is, why on earth is Paul using such strong language? Why is Paul so angry? He's angry. No question, no, no question about that. He is angry. Why is he so angry? In fact, this is the same Paul, this very same Paul, who in the previous chapter, chapter 2, said something quite different. Have a look at that, chapter 2, verse 2. Not chapter 3, verse 2, but chapter 2, verse 2. Notice what the same Paul says. 
He says there, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then the same Paul, chapter 3, verse 2, says, look out for those dogs, those evildoers. What was the issue? What was at stake here? Obviously, something major was at stake. Now, to give you a little bit of background, so come with me to Acts chapter 15. A few pages back, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then after John, you have the book of Acts chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Remember, the book of Acts is Church History 101. So after you've read about the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, you ask what happens next. You have Pentecost and you have the book of Acts, Church History 101. It shows the spread of the gospel throughout the known world at that time. And here in chapter 15, we have a church council meeting. And it's a church fight. It's the first church fight, I think, in the early church. Chapter 15, verse 1. Notice what we are told by Luke. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke tells us, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So what we have here is a church punch-up. Now let me tell you, most church punch-ups are bad. I know, I've been in some of them, I've caused some of them. Most church punch-ups are bad, but this is a good church punch-up. Some of them are good, and this one is good. You see, what was happening was that the gospel spread amongst the Jewish people from Jerusalem. And then some Gentiles, people like most of us here this morning, uh, some Gentiles came to accept Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. And then some of the Jewish Christians, the brothers, verse 1, from Judea, they were Christian, Jewish Christians, and they were saying, you Gentiles, if you want to be really saved, not only must you believe in Christ, you must obey the customs of Moses. You must obey the laws of Moses. You must, above all, be circumcised. And so there was a big punch-up. Because throughout the Bible, we are told that we are put right with God, not by works, but by faith in God. So go back to chapter 3, verse 2. That's the issue here. Those who mutilate the flesh... For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what was happening now in the church in Philippi, in modern-day Greece, is after Paul had planted this church, he'd left the church and gone off to plant other churches, he hears that false teachers have infiltrated the church. They were standing behind the pulpit and teaching, and they were teaching the same thing that was being taught in Acts 15. To be really saved, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. It's good that you put your faith and trust in Christ, but what you also need to do is you need to obey the laws of Moses. You need to be circumcised. And so Paul is furious. He says, these are, these are false teachers, These are not shepherds, these are dogs. 
They're not bringing you to God. No, they're mutilating the flesh. What you need is not a circumcision of the flesh. No, you need a circumcision of the heart. We don't glory in what we have done in the flesh by human hands. No, we glory in what Christ has done on the cross. So it's the overlying theme of the Bible that we are saved not by works but by grace. It's faith, not religion. It's what Christ has done for us. It's not what we have done for Christ. Now, many of you have seen this illustration, but let me use it again, especially to those who are new here this morning and new to our church, because it's so important that you understand the difference between religion and Christianity. I'm going to go to the whiteboard. All right, let me, let me give you a quick drawing of the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion, here we have religion. Here we have Christianity. And religion, all religion, all religion says do. You must do certain things. So you have the Buddhist eight-way path. You have the Hindu principle of karma. You have the five pillars of Islam. You have churchianity that has a whole list of things that you need to do. That is religion. That is what you do to try and get to heaven, to try and get to the good place. Paul says that is trash. Paul says that is the opposite of the gospel, diametrically opposite. Because Christianity isn't what you do. Christianity is what has been done. It's been done by Christ on the cross, on your behalf. There is a massive difference between Avis and Paul, between Netflix and Paul. Netflix and Avis says, try harder. Be a better person in 2022. That's what you need to do. Christianity says, no, there's nothing you can do. In fact, if you think there's something that you must do, you misunderstand it. There's actually nothing you can do. It's been done. And all you can do is call on God for mercy. Perhaps we could put it like this. You've seen this before. But once again, let's be reminded... Most people, here's you and me standing down here. Here is God. And religion says you take a stairway, you take a ladder, and you make your way up to God. Every year you try and do better. Every year you try, and, you try harder. Christianity says no, that is religion. Christianity is what God has done. God has taken the initiative. And God took the initiative by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross. That is the difference. It's not what we do, it's what Christ has done that makes you right with God. Most church fights are bad. Some church fights are good, and this is a good one. Let me just make two quick comments. One is... You may read chapter 2 and 3 and think to yourself, I wonder whether Paul was having a bad day at the office. I wonder if Paul wasn't schizo. So in chapter 2, verse 2, 
He's talking about do nothing out of selfish ambition. In humility, count others better than yourself. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beware of those who mutilate the flesh, the evildoers. I don't think Paul is schizo. I think Paul understands the difference. That when it comes to me and general relationships, what people say about me, what people think about me, what people say to me, Paul is saying, it doesn't really matter, guys. Forgive each other. Let's move on. But when it comes to principle, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to gospel truth, then we are to take our stand and to say this is right and this is wrong. Our problem, my dear friends, is we mostly mix up those two things. If you're anything like me, we get all upset when people say bad things about us or uh, do things that upset us, and we throw our toys out the cot, and when it comes to a matter of principle or gospel truth, we remain silent. Paul says no. When it comes to general relationships... Love covers over a multitude of sins. Forgive one another. When it comes to the truth of the gospel, you are to take your stand. Second thing here, just second comment, it's quite obvious from chapter 3 that being right with God and getting right with God is not a DIY matter. It's not you find your way to God, I find my way to God as long as you are sincere. It doesn't work from a Pauline worldview. No, there's a right way to get right with God and there's a wrong way to get right with God. It's not up to you and me. God has told us, God has revealed to us how we get right with him. All right, that's the fight. Secondly, the balance sheet. Now, those of you who know me well find it a little bit rich that I talk about balance sheets. I know very little about maths or science or uh, balance sheets. I do know how to spend money, um, But uh, let's have a look at the balance sheet here in verse 7. Because that's what he's got here. He's he's got a balance sheet in chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for, for the sake of Christ. So there's gain on the one hand, there's loss on the other hand. There's assets on the one side, there are liabilities on the other side. And what we're going to discover is that Paul gives us a different accounting procedure. What he thought was assets actually was liabilities. So let's have a look at verse 5 and 6. And what I want you, you to notice is what an extraordinary model of goodness Paul was. Paul was a religious zealot. He obeyed every law. He tried to be good. He tried to observe every possible law that God had given to him in the Old Testament. Let's have a look at his assets. And he gives us seven assets in verse 5 and 6. Let me read from verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now being circumcised was a sign that Paul belonged to, to the covenant people of God with special privileges. Remember Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, as a sign of the covenant, you are to circumcise your baby sons at eight days old. Interesting that Ishmael, one of the sons of Abraham, was only circumcised when he was 13. Interesting that converts to Judaism were only circumcised in adulthood. 
But Paul, however, was circumcised exactly as required on the eighth day, two of the people of Israel. Paul was not a proselyte. He was not a convert to Judaism. He was born a Jew. He was born into Judaism. He was born to kosher Jewish parents. He was born into the chosen race. He descended from a long line of Jewish ancestors. He was a true blue Israelite. No no skeletons. No mongrel blood. Three of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the most notable tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king, King Saul. Perhaps Saul, he was named after the first king, King Saul. Together with Judah, it was the only tribe that remained loyal to the house of David. Within its borders, the tribe of Benjamin was the capital, Jerusalem. Within its borders was the temple in Jerusalem. It was a special privilege to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Almost like saying you are royalty. Someone saying, I can trace my family tree back to King Shaka or Queen Victoria or whatever. Four, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, Paul wasn't born in Palestine. He was born in Turkey. But he lived and his parents and great-grandparents lived as Jews. Even though they lived far from Palestine... They adhere to all the laws, all the customs, and the language of the Jewish people. So at the breakfast table, there was no bacon. At the breakfast table, they spoke Hebrew, not Turkish. I heard of a fourth-generation Welsh family living in Canada who only speak Welsh at home. They gave away nothing. Five, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. So the first four assets, notice there, have to do with his upbringing, with his pedigree, but the next three deal with his personal accomplishments, his personal achievements. A Pharisee was someone who was meticulous about keeping the law, a devout Orthodox Jew. Perhaps you've seen them. If you go on a Saturday to Glen Hazel or to Norwood, you will see a gentleman with a long black coat and a long beard and... uh, The children all have these beautiful little curls on their foreheads. Um, That's Paul. Absolutely orthodox. Absolutely devout. Six, as for zeal, persecuting the church. So Saul the Jew was absolutely passionate about his faith, about Judaism. To Paul, the Christian church was an offense to God. Because the Christian church saw Jesus as more important than Moses. And they needed needed to be wiped out. So just like Muslims in North Nigeria or Saudi Arabia, it is their duty to kill Christians. Do you know that? You are serving God. It is your God-given duty. I was thinking, what is the closest parallel to Paul before his conversion on the Damascus Road? The closest thing, I think, is the Taliban in Afghanistan. Yeah, you have zealots, They are religiously zealous for God. They think it's their duty to kill Christians. That was Paul. Seven, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. 613 laws in the Old Testament, Paul kept them all. 
My dear friends, if anyone could get to heaven by being good, it was Paul. If anyone could get to heaven by obeying rules and regulations, it's Paul. A remarkable CV. Sevenfold CV. Surely these assets would get him into the good place, would get him to heaven. And then we have verse 7, which is a shock. Absolute shock. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What a shattering discovery. This desperately devout, zealous man, burning with religious zeal like the Taliban, only to discover I'm actually fighting against God. In fact, all my assets are not just neutral, they are liabilities. So Paul takes all these accomplishments, takes them off the profit column, and he places them under the loss column. Notice how he repeats the phrase, I count as loss. He doesn't say they are good things. They're not the best things, but they're good things. He doesn't say that. He says, no, I count them as loss. He says it three times, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Verse 8a again. Indeed, I count everything as loss. End of verse 8. I count, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What an extraordinary change in his balance sheet. What an extraordinary change in his thinking about his CV. His CV, he was proud of his CV. It was the kind of thing you put on the mantelpiece in your lounge so that when people came into the lounge, the first thing they saw, and they would ask you about it. And now he says there, verse 8, I count them as rubbish. In fact, the word rubbish there in the Greek, it's a very, very strong word. It means dung, means human excrement. It's brutal language, and yet that is precisely what Paul thinks of his religious pedigree, of his CV. No doubt the Jewish Christians in Philippi would say, Paul, you can't say that. You can't use such strong language. You must apologize. You've no right to talk about our cultural roots. This is the kind of things we remember on our heritage day. How can you talk about those things? As dung, and Paul says, No, all these privileges that I thought would get me into heaven are a liability. They're a loss. They're as good as rubbish. They're as good as dung. See, God had confronted him on the road to Damascus. And many of us here this morning have had that. Not in the same way that Paul has, but God has changed our hearts. He's changed our thinking. It's a miracle. It's supernatural to become a Christian. Because God changes your thinking, and you can think back to a time, perhaps it was over a few weeks or months, where God changed your mind, he changed your heart. That's what happened to Paul on the road to to Damascus, where he realized none of these things are of any value to get me right with God. God invaded his life. God gatecrashed his mind, his heart, and supernaturally changed his heart. Paul is probably the original person who got to the top of the ladder and then discovered the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. Perhaps that's where you should be this morning. 
Third principle, the fight, the balance sheet. And thirdly, the main thing. Let me read from verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the main thing for Paul is not that he was circumcised on the eighth day, is not that he was from the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. It was not in his law-keeping. It was not in his goodness. No, the main thing for Paul, and notice how he repeats it five times. The main thing, verse 3, is to glorify in Christ. The main thing, verse 7, is for the sake of Christ. The main thing, verse 8, is knowing Christ. The main thing, verse 8 again, is gaining Christ. The main thing, verse 9, is being in Christ. So what Paul is saying is the main thing in life is to know Christ, is to serve Christ, is to love Christ, to be in Christ. We think of 2022, what is the purpose? My dear friends, the ultimate purpose is not you and me, it's not about us. It's how we serve Christ. It's how we extend the kingdom of Christ. It's how we live for Christ. Christ can use you whether you're happy or unhappy. Christ can use you whether you have COVID or you don't have COVID. Christ can use you whether you're depressed or not depressed. It's actually about him. It's not about us. The purpose of 2022, my dear friends, individually and as a church, is to serve Christ. It may be a hard year. It may be a difficult year. Nonetheless, what is the point? What is the purpose? The purpose is not me. The purpose is not my happiness. The purpose is not my little life. No, the purpose is to serve Christ, to be in Christ. That's the point. Paul is saying my identity is no longer in Judaism. My identity is no longer in Zionism. My identity is no longer in being religious or law-keeping or being good. No, my identity is in Christ. Here at the school, we have a security guard. He's called David. He normally looks after the top gate. He's a lovely Christian man. And uh, the staff here and others who know David know that when you ask David, how are you? David always says, together. And... uh, it often makes you think, what does he mean? We have a little ritual so that I say, David, how are you? He says, together. And then I say, David, together in what? And he says, together in Christ. I think he gets it. I think he gets it. Now, the critical question as I close, the critical question is, how do you get to be in Christ? How does that happen? How do you gain Christ? How do you know Christ? How do you love Christ? How can you be like David who says, I am together in Christ? Churchianity says, you need to go to church. I go to church. Churchianity says, I've been baptized. I take communion. Churchianity says, I know Royden. I know David. Churchianity says, I give to charity. I try and live by the golden rule. In fact, one person actually said to my friend, 
colleague Rico. He said, look, Rico, how can you say I won't be allowed in heaven? How can you say that? I mean, Rico, I give blood. I mean, Rico, I give blood. No, how are we in Christ? Verse 9. Notice verse, end of verse 8. You gain Christ. How do you gain Christ? Verse 9, not through your own righteousness or your own goodness. Not through your adherence to the law. No, you gain Christ by faith in Christ. It's a righteousness that doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Notice, it's from God. It's not from us. It's not from Paul and his CV. No, it's from God. That word righteousness could equally be translated justified. How do you be right with God? How do you have a right standing with God? How do you be qualified to enter the good place, heaven? I don't call it the good place. I call it heaven because that's what the Bible calls it. How do I qualify? And Paul makes quite clear, you qualify not by what you do, but what Christ has done for you. It's quite crystal clear there in verse 9 comes from God. It's God's initiative. It's not our initiative. My dear friends, if you've been a Christian uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're still a Christian, 2nd of January 2022, let me just tell you, you are not a Christian because you're hanging on to God. Forget it. You're a Christian because God's hanging on to you. God saved you and God is hanging on to you. That's why you're still a Christian. It's faith in Christ, what he did. Remember that illustration I'll use it again, as I do with all my illustrations. I only have five or six. Let's imagine, let's imagine this hand is me. Let's imagine that the light up there is God. The problem, my dear friends, that you and I have is that between me and God is my sin. And this represents my sin. If it really represented my sin, it would have been much darker and it would have been a big duvet blanket. Between me and God is my sin. That is the problem. I deserve the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Imagine this is Christ. Christ came down at Christmas. We, we remember the incarnation of God. Christ came down into this world, and on the cross, my sin was placed upon Christ, and Christ took the judgment and wrath of God that I deserve. And so now I can have a relationship with God because the righteousness of Christ was placed upon me. My sin was placed upon Christ and Christ's righteousness was placed upon me. And therefore, I have access into the presence of God. So what we have here is grace. Instinctively, we all feel that there's something I must do to be accepted by God. I think that's an instinct we have from our fallen nature. We are all incorrigibly religious. And grace says there's nothing you can do. It's all been done. Someone said that if you could have been saved by good book bookkeeping, you would have been saved by Moses, not by Jesus. In the universe of ungrace, some people deserve more than other people. In God's universe of grace, the word deserve doesn't exist. Let me close and ask you the question, what are you depending upon this morning? What are you depending upon 
to get to heaven, to know God, to be right with God. If you were to stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Are you going to give him a long list of reasons that Paul calls rubbish? There's lots of wrong answers to that question. There's only one right answer. I've trusted in what Christ has done for me on my behalf. Now, there may be someone here this morning who, who would say to me, Martin, you actually don't know me, and you don't know how bad I am. I actually don't deserve to go to heaven at all. And you're absolutely right, you don't. You don't. None of us do. But Martin, you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know how deep it was. You don't know how long it was. You don't know that it was something I did again and again and again. God is not going to extend grace to people like me. Perhaps that's you. Let me just say to you, your argument is nonsense. It's incoherent. How can you be too bad to receive grace? How can you be too bad to receive what is for the bad? No, the offer is for people like you and me. doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, how long it was, how deep it was. There is grace. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You may want to tell God where you are this morning, right now. Perhaps as we've been singing, as we've been listening to God's word, you have felt God the Holy Spirit press in upon your heart and your mind perhaps here in the auditorium or perhaps on the website, and you realize it's time to get right with God, wouldn't today be a good day to finally stop ducking and diving, to finally get right with God, to finally bow the knee? If you want to get right with God, you do that through prayer. Prayer is talking to God, and I'm going to pray a prayer that you may want to pray just quietly in the back of your head. It's between you and God. You may not be ready to pray this prayer, but perhaps you are, and perhaps God has been urging you. Here's the prayer. Lord, I don't understand it all, but I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you save me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? And Father, we thank you that when we call upon you for grace and mercy, it doesn't matter where we've been, that you hear and you answer.
So work amongst us today, supernaturally. And Lord, help us as we go into this new year to live for Christ. That we may know that he is the purpose and the reason. There is no other. Forgive us when we have tried to live for lesser things. So Lord, go with us and be with us. Use us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.